one more time. Do you enjoy one? That was a little bit slurred. It's gotta be This is episode 230, Guthrum Gets a Bath. We're back. Thanks for being patient for our brief hiatus as we traveled to the UK. While we were away, we spoke to some of the country's top Anglo-Saxon scholars. So watch your feed in the next couple weeks because there's going to be some extra episodes and you won't hear these talks anywhere else. Also, a big thank you to everyone who showed up to the historic George Inn for the BHP London Meetup. Co-producer Z and I loved meeting all of you and had a fantastic time. It was amazing to watch history lovers from every walk of life meet each other and make friends. Some are even talking about having regular listener meetups where they live, so keep an eye out on social media. And if you would like to get the word out about your own regular listener meetup, get in touch with me and I'll make sure that our Facebook and Twitter communities know where to find you. Now, as always, this show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Tomash, Elliot, and Jeremy for signing up already. For Alfred, everything had changed at Chippenham. It was at Chippenham where he lost his crown and his kingdom. And considering how Guthrum's conquest had gone virtually unchallenged, it's also possible it was there that he was the victim of a coup. So Chippenham was a place of great shame for the House of Wessex. That is, until now. Now Chippenham was the site of his reinstatement. It had taken a mere matter of months But here Alfred was, in May, with Guthrum locked behind the walls of the Ville, with no choice but to surrender. So here, at Chippenham, Alfred was ascendant. But despite Alfred's resounding victory at Ethendon and the successful siege at Chippenham, the affairs of state weren't yet complete. Guthrum may have surrendered, but past actions had shown that he was completely willing to renege on the terms of surrender. In fact, he was even willing to do it after hostages had been exchanged. So while Alfred did have a number of hand-picked hostages from the northern warlord, he wasn't going to take any chances. Alfred wanted God to intercede and place his mark upon this truce. Perhaps the reason why the peace at Wareham didn't work, despite the appeals to Christ and the gods of the pagans, was because Guthrum was, well, a pagan. And this had been a problem all throughout Western Europe. But the kingdom of the Franks had found one possible solution to it. When Harold Clack of the Danes presented a threat to the Franks, Louis the Pious had him baptized, along with hundreds of his warriors. And it had the desired effect. The pagans had been tamed. And this story seems to have spread as far as Wessex, because Alfred had decided that he was going to follow suit. This time, Alfred would not make peace with a pagan. He would make peace with a fellow Christian. And that meant that Guthrum needed to be baptized. But a baptism, especially a forced baptism of state, is no small matter. They couldn't just get a barrel of water, chuck Guthrum in it, and say, all right, now you're Christian. This baptism would need to be bigger than that. And that's the case regardless of Alfred's motivations. 
If he was doing this for strictly religious reasons, Alfred would want to curry as much favor with the Almighty as possible. So cutting corners would be straight out. And if this was for propaganda reasons, if it was to impress upon Guthrum the power of this ritual and make him feel truly bound, then the ceremony would have to be an overwhelming experience. It would need to be majestic and profound. So, after his victory as a war leader, Alfred found an, Alfred suddenly found himself in the role of an event planner. Have you ever planned a wedding? Now imagine wedding your worst enemy to God himself. So Alfred's to-do list would have been massive. He would need to gather the kingdom's most important men of the cloth for a start, but he would also need to acquire ceremonial trappings and all manner of other accessories necessary to show Guthrum the power and might of the god of the West Saxons. The pagans had already seen the strength of this god when the storms were brought down upon the fleet off the coast of Sandwich, and Alfred would need to create a similarly impressive experience. And so getting all of this together would have taken some work. Wessex had been in a state of war for months now. Guthrum's forces had looted and ransacked large portions of the West. And what Guthrum didn't raid and burn, Alfred's band probably did. So this was a bit like planning on having that wedding in your house a few days after a major fire. I mean, it might be possible, but it's going to take some work. Furthermore, Alfred had been in hiding. So now he needed to return to his kingdom in a visible and political way. Nobles would need to be greeted. Diplomatic affairs of state would need to be conducted. And that's not even getting into the personal aspects of returning to Wessex. Think about it. Given that no mention of his family was made during his time on Athelney, coming out of hiding likely meant that he was reunited with his children and his wife. And what single character trait have we known about Alfred since he was a young boy? This guy had such a strong libido that even his personal biographer wrote about it. Alfred the Great, in addition to being a solid tactician and a gifted propagandist, was a certified horn dog. And so now, after dealing with life or death situations for months, and likely being unsure of whether or not his family was even alive, he was finally reunited with his wife. No one talks about it in the record. But my guess is that there would have been at least one unofficial royal decree around this time stating that if the castle's a rockin', and if you doubt me, about a year later, Aleswith gave birth to her fifth child, Athelweird. I think it's pretty clear that they didn't waste any time. So, three weeks passed as things were taken care of and preparations were made. It's not detailed what Guthrum and his forces were doing during this period, but it's likely that they weren't doing very much. There's a good chance that, given how they behaved in the past, the Northmen were under a careful watch, or possibly even left inside Chippenham as effective prisoners. I mean, I find it hard to believe that Alfred would have done any less, considering that Guthrum had a habit of stealing off into the night and stealing cities, and sometimes crowns. But after three weeks... The preparations were finally complete, and Guthrum, along with 30 of his most glorious soldiers, made the march to a place in Somerset called Aller. It would have been a long march, about 60 miles. And you might be wondering why they chose to do the baptism there. Why not at Winchester, 
or Chippenham, or any of the other powerful royal possessions. After all, Allard doesn't appear to have been much of anything. In fact, I've had a hell of a time finding any records of Allard predating the Doomsday Book. And as far as I know, this baptism was the first time that it appears in the record. It's not an old Roman settlement. I'm not sure it was any kind of settlement whatsoever during this period. So why Aller? Well, if you search for it on a map, it becomes clear. Aller is about two miles away from Alfred's rebel fortress on Athelney. This might have just been a pure show of power. An opportunity to bring Guthrum into the very marshes that had been a death trap for his warbands and a source of all his problems. And then, once he was there in this place that defeated him, he would be forced to submit to God. It's quite a power play. Now, it might have also been an act of piety. If Alfred thought that God had delivered him, conducting a baptism in the place where he ran his war might make a certain amount of ecclesiastical sense. We'll probably never know, but whatever the case, Guthrum and his men made the long journey to Aller, almost certainly under the watchful eye of the West Saxon warbands. The defeated Northmen were dressed in white baptismal garments, and then they were led to the font. And given the way that many baptisms work, I have to wonder if the font was actually the river Parrot, given that it ran right through Aller. And there would be a certain degree of symbolism there if it was the river Parrot, as it was on that river that the forces of Devon and Somerset defeated the Danes 34 years earlier, in 845. But whatever the case, prayers would have been said, and then Guthrum would have been brought into the water. Standing beside him was Alfred. Guthrum would then have to let his weight rest upon Alfred, and allow his archenemy, this young king with a strange god, submerge him underwater. Once underwater, he likely heard the muted sounds of further prayers being uttered. And he would have had to just trust Alfred to bring him up. We don't know how the specifics of this played out. How long Guthrum was under, precisely what Alfred or any other priest said, what Guthrum thought or what he said. But I have to wonder if Guthrum was worried about being drowned. Was he worried that this was all just a ruse, and that this ceremony would simply end up with him being killed in a manner that might deny him Valhalla? We don't know, but if I was in his shoes, I would have been at least a little anxious. But after a moment, or eventually, Alfred raised Guthrum from the waters, and gave the Northmen a new name, an English name, his brother's name, Guthrum. The pagan scourge of the English was no more. He was now Athelstan, noble rock, and he was a Christian now. Though he was more than that, he was also the godson of Alfred. They were spiritual kin, bound together by God himself. And I know what you're thinking. You could care less about the peace that was just established. You're too busy thinking, oh, for the love of God, we have another Athel name that we have to keep track of? Why couldn't he have just stayed Guthrum? And I hear you. We're up to our necks in Athels. And honestly, Guthrum is a kick-ass name. But giving an incredibly common baptismal name is a tried-and-true tradition. And I suppose that this isn't all that different from the flood of Matthews, Marks, Lukes, and Johns. Not to mention all the Chrises, Christians, Christophers, Christines, Christians, Christians, and Chrissies. But yeah, here we are with another Athelstan. 
And I want to make sure that the commuters who might have been zoning out heard this. So let me wake them up. Hey, Guthrum is now known as Athelstan. Cool? All right, awesome. Though I'm actually going to probably call him Guthrum Athelstan because otherwise it's going to get really confusing. So, after the ritual was complete, it was time for Guthrum Athelstan's followers to join him. And one by one, they were baptized. Though it doesn't appear that Alfred was involved in their baptisms, the record states only that he raised Guthrum Athelstan, so I suspect that they stood apart and spoke about their shared religion and all the other important issues of state that are necessary to make a long and lasting peace. This ceremony would have taken the better part of the day, given all who needed baptizing. And at the end, the order was given to relocate to the royal holding of Wedmore. So Alfred, newly christened Athelstan, the host of converted Northmen, West Saxon warriors, holy men, and the various assorted followers all gathered their things and began the 15-mile march back in the direction they came from. They were headed north for the chrism leasing, the christening festival. These Northmen were now fellow Christians, and that was something to celebrate. They were also celebrating the reinstatement of the House of Wessex and a lasting peace with their former enemies. So all the stops would have been pulled out. And the Anglo-Saxons knew how to feast, so this would have been no exception. You don't think they delayed the baptism for three weeks simply to get some robes for Guthrum Athelstan, did you? Hell no. They were prepping for a massive party. A party that would last for days. Twelve days to be precise. And the symmetry here is hard to miss. Alfred had lost his kingdom following 12 days of celebrating Christmas. And now he was celebrating regaining his kingdom and the bringing of his former enemy into Christendom with another 12-day party. At this feast, the king gave the newly christened Athelstan, as well as his around 30 companions, gifts. A lot of gifts. Guthrum Athelstan also wore his baptismal robes for eight days and probably so did the other converts. After the eight days, he and his baptized companions removed their, probably much less white, robes in the presence of Alfred. I told you the Anglo-Saxons know how to party. Now these feasts are an Anglo-Saxon cultural hack. They're intended to bind the upper classes together. They're a bonding exercise. The drinking, the stories, the length of them, and of course the gifts are all part of that practice. So I'm sure that, at least on the basis level, this was an event to show the new converts the way things are done. To teach them their new culture, and to hopefully bind them to it through honor or at least a shared experience. I also suspect that this, much like the choice of location, was a show of force. A way of Alfred to show his majesty and the sheer scale of his wealth and power. He and his god were so powerful that he could give gifts to his enemies. And we all know who gives gifts in Anglo-Saxon society. His military was so dominant that he could even afford to make peace with these Danes, rather than having them killed. And he was so rich that he could feast them for nearly two weeks, simply because he wanted to. In a sense, this very well may have been a tangible way of saying, we've beaten you in the field even when we had nothing. But now, now we have everything. Don't test us again. 
As for the eight-day-long marathon of wearing the baptismal robes and their removal in Alfred's presence, some scholars suspect that this was another bit of Christian magic being thrown into the mix, and it was intended to bind the new Guthrum Athelstan as well as his followers to the same code of conduct that Alfred followed. It seems to have worked, because after the festival, Guthrum Athelstan and his forces packed up and marched, probably a bit gingerly due to their hangovers, and they headed north. The war between Wessex and Guthrum was brutal, but it was finally over. And it ended in a kind of weirdly spectacular way. You screwed up Christmas, Guthrum, so we're doing it all over again. And you're the tree. Now strip. And that's the story of how Alfred the Great made England 100% Viking free, right? I mean, that's what they taught school kids for ages, isn't it? That Alfred the Great saved England from the Vikings. So that must mean that there weren't any more problems with Vikings, right? Well, obviously, that's not what actually happened. Virtually everything in that statement is wrong, in fact. As you know, there's no such thing as England at this point. But beyond that, even if there was an England, Alfred didn't save it from the Vikings. Northumbria was still occupied. Mercia was at least under a partial occupation. East Anglia appears to have been occupied. England wasn't saved. And as for those of you saying, well, fine, he did save Wessex from the Vikings, though. Wrong again. On the very same year that our old friend Guthrum was rebranded to Athelstan, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that a band of pirates, meaning Vikings, sailed up the Thames and occupied Fulham. So they were just outside of London. Now, it's not clear why they picked Fulham, though we can be pretty sure it wasn't for the football. Yeah, you heard me, Fulham FC. Unfortunately, we aren't told what they were doing there, nor are we told why they stayed for a full year before leaving. Instead, the scribes tell us about a one-hour eclipse that they saw, and it apparently blew their minds so much that they neglected their duties of bird watching. But the point here is that Viking activity hadn't stopped. Alfred didn't save England from the Vikings. Large portions were annexed or occupied, and there were still raids occurring even within Wessex that apparently continued for a full year, which suggests that Alfred didn't even have the strength to eject them from his own kingdom. But one thing is true. Alfred was successful at converting and ejecting the biggest threat to his rule, the Viking formerly known as Guthrum. And as a fun bonus, Alfred also pushed the Viking army back into Mercia, the kingdom that should have been ruled over by his brother-in-law, but instead was ruled over by King Cholwulf II, a collaborator that Alfred, despite working occasionally with him, would later describe as a foolish king's thane. It doesn't look like there's much love lost between the two kings. And now, Cholwulf II had a problem on his hands. The Danes had been gone for half the year, and it looked like they might have been gone for good, they had bigger fish to fry with the occupation of Wessex. But that apparently was over now, and they were back. And they were occupying Sirencester. Now to be clear, those lands had earlier been shared out by Guthrum, and it appears that it was done with Cholwulf's blessing, so this might have just been a simple, peaceful reoccupation of their lands. However, the fact remains that suddenly one of the most fearsome armies in Britain had returned to Mercia. 
and they had already proven that they were incredibly dangerous even in defeat. And regardless of his fancy new name, this Viking king had proved that he was most fearsome when he had warriors who were expecting payment. And after a long fight, followed by defeat, they might have been looking for money. So I doubt that Chulwolf II was sleeping all that soundly. He was probably cursing his bad luck. Furthermore, reading between the lines of our spotty sources, it looks like the arrival of the Danes caused a fair amount of political trouble within Mercia. Because shortly after Sirencester was retaken, we're told that an elderman named Athelred, son of, I don't know, someone, was now ruling Mercia. Meaning that King Cholwulf II either died or he was deposed. Either way, there was a regime change within Mercia. And there's evidence that this may have been a political coup that resulted in either Cholwulf's death or exile. Because here's the rub. Chilwulf was recorded as having heirs, and yet the title of king never passed to them. Furthermore, the C dynasty, which many scholars believe Chilwulf was a part of, was fully cut out of the Mercian power structure. Moreover, Guthrum Athelstan, as well as his newly converted Danes, didn't stay in Sirencester. Instead, they packed up soon thereafter and headed for East Anglia. And then we have the cherry on top that really makes this thing look like it was a coup. The new king of Mercia, this new Athelred son of somebody, turned and recognized King Alfred as his overlord. Now think it through. Only a few months earlier, Cholwulf was untouchable. He was allied with one of the most powerful forces in Britain. And because of that alliance, he was able to strip his rivals of lands and then hand them out to his allies and also to himself. But now all of those rival dynasties were smelling blood in the water. Cholwulf's Viking allies had been defanged. And the rival families had a potential ally in Alfred, given that Cholwulf was no friend of Alfred as he was occupying his brother-in-law's throne. And we've already seen Alfred talking about how he intended to be the king of all of the English, not under the rule of the Danes. So engaging in a coup in order to go and put someone friendly on the throne, who would then recognize Alfred as his overlord, might have been an ideal opportunity to accomplish his ultimate goal of forming one gigantic kingdom. But however it happened, from the record, it appears that at the end of 879, there were only two Anglo-Saxon rulers south of the Humber who still sat on their thrones. But given that one of them had already bent the knee, functionally, there was only one, Alfred. And as his godson retreated into East Anglia, Alfred wasted no time. The Viking threat was far from over, and he had work to do. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. All right, it's time for another pub quiz. You know the drill. Question one. Alfred's band on Athelney engaged in harrying attacks upon Guthrum's forces day and night. Now, by launching these types of attacks, what political effect was he having upon Guthrum? Question two. 
One Elderman in particular joined Alfred soon after his arrival in Somerset, and his support appears to have led to a turning point in the fight for Wessex. He was an elderman who would continue to be among Alfred's most trusted generals and even serve as his diplomat for years to come. Name that elderman. Question 3. The type of war that Alfred engaged in looks a lot like a guerrilla war. Now, would that be in line with or in contrast to the Anglo-Saxon way of war? Question four, how did Guthrum respond to the West Saxon resistance in Somerset? Question five, what was likely the most common experience for Alfred's guerrilla fighters when they were out in the field? Question six, in Devon, as the resistance in Somerset continued, another front in the war opened up. There was an invasion led by Ubba, and the Eldermen of Devon led an army to meet him in battle. What was the name of that elderman? Question seven. When he had gathered enough support for open war, the elderman and Ferds answered Alfred's call, and they agreed to meet him at what location? Question eight. Where did Alfred's army and Guthrum's forces finally lock shields in open battle? Question nine. Where did Alfred's fight for Wessex end? Question 10. After Guthrum surrendered, what did Alfred make him do? All right, let's see how you did. Question one. Alfred's band on Athelney engaged in harrying attacks upon Guthrum's forces day and night. Now by launching these types of attacks, what political effect was he having upon Guthrum? Alfred was demonstrating the weakness of Guthrum and delegitimizing his rule. Question two. One elderman in particular joined Alfred soon after his arrival in Somerset, and his support appears to have led to a turning point in the fight for Wessex. He was an elderman who would continue to be among Alfred's most trusted generals and even serve as his diplomat for years to come. Name that elderman. Athelnoth of Somerset. Question three. The type of war that Alfred engaged in looks a lot like a guerrilla war. Now, would that be in line with or in contrast to the Anglo-Saxon way of war? It was starkly against the Anglo-Saxon code of honor, which called for ritual open combat. So these hit and run strikes would have been in contrast to the Anglo-Saxon way of war. Question four, how did Guthrum respond to the West Saxon resistance in Somerset? He engaged in a violent crackdown and ravaged the countryside of Wiltshire Hampshire, and Somerset. Question five. What was likely the most common experience for Alfred's guerrilla fighters when they were out in the field? Walking and then waiting for the right time to strike. It would have been boring as hell. Question six. In Devon, as the resistance in Somerset continued, another front in the war opened up. There was an invasion led by Ubba and the Elderman of Devon led an army to meet him in battle. What was the name of that Elderman? Oda. Question seven. When he had gathered enough support for open war, the Elderman and Ferds answered Alfred's call, and they agreed to meet him at what location? Egbert Stone. Question eight. Where did Alfred's army and Guthrum's forces finally lock shields in open battle? It was at the Battle of Eddington. 
Question 9. Where did Alfred's fight for Wessex end? Curiously, it wasn't at Eddington. It was at Chippenham where Guthrum finally surrendered, which presented an odd bookend to this story. Question 10. After Guthrum surrendered, what did Alfred make him do? He had to be baptized. He had to become Alfred's godson. He had to take on a new name. And then he had this huge post-baptism party that involved Guthrum publicly removing his baptismal clothes. It was a whole big thing. I hope you did well, and we'll see you on the next one.